and what will be after him under the sun. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death better than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for sadness, for by sadness the face uh, for by sadness of the face the heart is made glad. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of a wi- the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God, who can make straight what he has made crooked. This is the word of the Lord. May he be glorified in the reading of his word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before you this morning humbly asking, Lord, that you would teach us and instruct us. Asking, Father, that you would give us wisdom to understand your word. Lord, we come echoing the words of the psalmist in Psalm 119, asking you to open our eyes that we might behold beautiful things from your truth. And Father, I pray this morning that as I speak, as I preach, that I would not say anything that would detract from your glory, that I would not say anything that would detract from your truth, but Father God, that we would this morning by your word, by the power of your spirit, by the glory of your son, that we would be fed, that we would be encouraged, that we would be strengthened, and that we would leave today, Father, understanding better our need for Christ. Lord, that we would not leave this morning trusting in our own strength, trusting in our own power, trusting in our own wisdom, but Lord, we would leave this morning all the more aware of our desperate need for Jesus and how through him you are changing us and transforming us from one degree of glory to the next. So, Father, we surrender this time to you. We ask that you would be glorified and that we, your people, would be encouraged. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Um, As we look at our our passage this morning, the bulk of which is in chapter 7, it kind of sticks out like a sore thumb, right? I mean, if we look at chapter 7, especially verses 1 through uh, 13, we, we think, or we might be led to think that we're now reading from the book of Proverbs as opposed to reading from the book of Ecclesiastes because the writer of Ecclesiastes now kind of slips into this kind of proverbial type speech echoing kind of the wisdom that we would see in Proverbs. And if we've been paying attention throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, um, the, the preacher uh, seems to be kind of acting in a way that, that kind, of, kind of throws shade sort of at Proverbs, right? Proverbial wisdom says if you do X and Y, you will get Z. And what the preacher has been saying, it seems quite a bit, is what happens when you do X and Y and you get D, right? And so now all of a sudden he's using Proverbs. And it might be hard at first for us to kind of understand the way that these two passages, especially the end of chapter 6 and the beginning of chapter 7, how they, how they fit together. It just seems like he's just made a jump here. But, but the truth is that uh, they do, I think, flow together nicely, although maybe not as smoothly as we would want them to. And, and the connection 
really between the verses in chapter 6 and what we read in chapter 7 is found in the question that the preacher asks in verse 12. If we look at verse 12 of chapter 6, the preacher asks this question. He says, For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life which he passes like a shadow? Um, Leave it up to the, the preacher here to ask a really kind of encouraging and uplifting question, right? Who knows what's good for man while he passes his vain life? This, this question really functions in, in two ways. Um, it, it functions really as a, an explanation for the conclusion that the preachers come to at the end of chapter 6, and it acts also as a bridge moving us into chapter 7. And we, we kind of need to keep the whole, the whole scope of the book of Ecclesiastes in mind here right? The preacher, as we've seen from the beginning here, the preacher is on a pursuit to find uh, purpose or, or meaning in life, right? And, and his, his conclusion is not that life is meaningless, right? We don't want to come away from Ecclesiastes thinking that the preacher is telling us life is meaningless, but his conclusion is that any attempt to find meaning is elusive, Right? The word that keeps getting repeated is vanity of vanities. Everything is vanity. And that word we talked about before, that word refers to uh, smoke or, or vapor. Right? And the imagery is that trying to find meaning in life, trying to understand the purpose or meaning of life, is like trying to hold on to smoke. Right? It's trying to re- like trying to reach out and grab smoke. It's elusive. It slips through our fingers. And what we've seen is that every time he's tried to find meaning or everything that he's tried to test, right, whether it's riches, whether it's toil, whether it's excess, whatever it is, every time he comes to the same conclusion. This is vanity of vanities. Trying to find meaning in this, meaning in this is, is hopeless. And so at the end of chapter 6, we really read uh, rather familiar words where the preacher expresses for us his understanding of humanity's limitations. Look at verses 10 and 11 again. He says, Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity, and what is the advantage to man? The preacher has expressed before the limitations of humanity, right? Uh, I think last time I preached, I preached from chapter 3 where we have that, that great poem about time, right? Where the, the, that, that bird song from the 60s, right? And, and the preacher looks at time, and in looking at time, he sees so acutely man's, man's limitations, right? Like man's inability to control time, and yet God stands outside of time. And even at the end of chapter 3, he kind of comes to a very similar conclusion, and that is everything is already set, and what has already been, or what has been has already been, and what will be has already been, and, and nobody can change anything. Right? And so he comes to the same kind of conclusion here at the end of chapter 6, being aware of man's limitations. And he becomes the, the same kind of conclusion, declaring it vanity. And so in response to that, or really as a, as a ground for that, as, a, as an explanation for that, is the question of verse 12. Why is everything va- vanity? Why is there no advantage to what man does? Verse 12, for who knows what is good for man all the days of his vain life that he passes like a shadow? For who can tell a man what will be in the future, his limitations become a source of great frustration for the preacher. The question in verse 12 also serves to set up the list of Proverbs that we read here in chapter 7, verses 1 through 13. You see, the question, what is good for man, is not completely a rhetorical question. 
Because that word good there in verse 12, if you, if you look into verse, or chapter 7, that word is actually repeated again and again. In, in, in the Hebrew, it's the word tov. And it means good or better. And if you just look at chapter 7, how many times do we see good or better? In fact, verse 1, a good name is better than precious ointment. And so that chapter, or that, that question in verse 12 of chapter 6, what is good for man or who can know what is good for man, the preacher sets out to at least give us some inkling or understanding or idea of what he thinks might be good or better for mankind in chapter 7 in these Proverbs. However, while the preacher does seek to answer this question of what is good or better for mankind, he does not come to a different conclusion. His conclusion is the same as it has been throughout the book up to this point, and that is that his pursuit to find meaning in life still ends in vanity. As we read through, the, through these Proverbs, we are immediately shocked sort of by the direction that they go, right? Uh, if we look at verse 1, the very first sentence in verse 1, a good name is better than precious ointment, and if we were to stop right there, we would kind of feel pretty good about that, right? And that would seem to make sense to us. In fact, if you go to Proverbs chapter 22, you would read something pretty much exactly similar to what the preacher is saying here, that a good name or a good reputation is better than fine jewels. That's what it says in Proverbs 22. So we might be led to think that, that all of a sudden the, the preacher is taking kind of like a left turn and he's pursuing down this path of traditional wisdom, traditional proverbial wisdom, and he's kind of unlocked the key to everything. But, but that thought or that idea really falls apart with the, the very next sentence. And the day of death better than the day of birth. And so the wheels fall off again. We're, we're right back into this kind of dark and almost, not hopeless, but certainly frustrated approach to life. And the truth is, is that the direction that the, the preacher goes with these Proverbs in chapter 7 really shouldn't surprise us. In fact, if we just go back to chapter 4, in the beginning of chapter 4, verses uh, 1, or 2 and 3, um, the, the preacher is speaking about oppression, right? The oppression that he sees in the world and how uh, people are oppressed by those who are stronger and nobody seems to do anything about it. And in response to the oppression he sees in, in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 4, he says this, And I thought, the dead who are already dead are more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet uh, been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Or even back up earlier, in chapter 6, in verse 3, he says that a stillborn child is better off than those who are alive. So the, the fact that the preacher is talking about death being better than birth is not so shocking. In fact, even though we might be shocked by the direction he goes, we really shouldn't because it's in line with where he's been taking us throughout this book. So really the question comes for us this morning is, is how, how are we to understand this passage? And really that was the question I was asking myself all week. Right? I was talking to some friends at work, and I'm, I'm like, Michael was really gracious this morning in his kind of introduction of me. Um, but I was talking to some friends, you know, I, I'm so thankful for the opportunity to preach, right? I, I love preaching, I love teaching, I love getting into the Word with people. But jumping into like a gospel is a lot different than jumping into Ecclesiastes, right? 
Like, if Kevin were preaching through Mark and he was like, hey, could you take this passage? That's, that's great. But Ecclesiastes, like, just kind of jumping into chapter 7 is, is quite difficult. And I'll be sure to give Pastor Kevin an earful when he gets back. And so the whole week I've been asking myself, like, how, how do we understand this? How do I understand, or we understand, what, what the preacher is doing here? And again, we, we can't separate what's going on in chapter 7 from what we've seen in the whole book. That would be wrong. That would be bad hermeneutics. We've, we've got to think about it within this context of this search for meaning that is continually proving elusive for the preacher. And so in light of that, I don't think that the preacher's point here or his goal here is to impart sound wisdom to us. Right? I, I don't think what he's doing with these Proverbs here is trying to communicate to us sound wisdom, much like the book of Proverbs would do, but I think what he's attempting to do is show that wisdom does not, under, does not ultimately lead to an understanding of the meaning of all things. If you remember, the, the preacher has set out to test his kind of hypothesis that everything is vanity through different avenues, right? If we go back to chapter 1, uh, he talks about testing it through wisdom, through folly, through pleasure, through excess, and so I think what we're engaged in here is another area where the, where the preacher is putting to test a concept to see if there ultimately is meaning found. And what we see is he ends up in the same exact place, that all is meaningless. As we look through these verses, uh, most people would say, uh, most scholars would say that it is difficult or even impossible to find a logical progression, to pick out a logical progression through these verses. But there are themes that are present in these verses. If we look at the first uh, few verses, first three or four verses, we see that death is a theme that looms large, right? Better is the day of death than the day of birth. Better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting. In fact, death has been a major theme for the writer of Ecclesiastes, right? The preacher, as he, as he sees death as that great equalizer which ends all things, both the wise and the fool meet the same end. And so death is a major theme that we see here. There's a theme of contrasting the wise person with the foolish person. We see that in the middle section. And then there's even the theme of the benefit of wisdom as we look towards the uh, last few verses. All of which is boxed in by this understanding of God's sovereign control over all things. Which again is a theme for the preacher in the book of Ecclesiastes. In chapter, uh, chapter 6 verse 10 and in chapter 7 verse 13 we see two statements about God's sovereign control over all things. So what I want to suggest this morning is that these verses give us a clear picture of one of the major distinctions between the wise person and the fool. See, I don't don't think that the preacher is attempting to give us clear-cut wisdom here so much as, as he is giving us a clear contrast between those who are wise, and those who are foolish. In fact, I think in these verses, he gives us the major difference between those who are wise and those who are foolish, and that difference is one of awareness. I think what we see in these verses is that the the preacher shows us how those who are wise live with a clear awareness of the world around them, whereas those who are foolish live in willful ignorance. And what we need to think about this morning as we work through these verses is that as the preacher is speaking and as the preacher is explaining this, his whole focus is really on life that he sees around him, right? If you read through the book of Ecclesiastes, the preacher sees death as the 
end, right? It is the great equalizer. It is what ends all things. He is not operating with a very clear or at least visible understanding of life after death, eternal life, right? So his, his understanding of the distinction between the wise person and the fool is played out within the realm of life. But what we understand, right, what we understand clearly looking back at Ecclesiastes as new covenant believers, right, we understand that death is not the end of all things, but rather death is the entrance into eternal life. And so what we need to understand as we look at the distinction between the wise person and the fool is that this distinction doesn't just play out in our mortal lives, but it has eternal implications for us. I was just sitting there with, with Maddie just this morning uh, while we were singing, she asked me if I was nervous, and I said, I'm terrified. Terrified to preach. Why? Because when you preach, I said to Maddie, this is, this is the word of God, right? This is life and, and death, right? How we respond to Christ is the difference between life and death, and I think what we see here is when we think about wisdom and foolishness, it's not just temporal. It is eternal, and it's not, it's not something to be trifled with. It has implications for life and death, and so I want us to work through these passages in the two hours that we have. And I want us to see the distinction between the wise person and the fool. And in doing so, I want us to work through a couple points first. And I made absolutely no PowerPoint, as you can tell. Just that. That's a picture of me uh, and Andrew smoking a uh, cigar together, and then we just, we just put Ecclesiastes on top of it. Um, but there's a couple points that I want to work through. First, I, I want us to understand how even though everything is vanity, the preacher still, the preacher still advocates for wisdom over foolishness, right? Even though all things are vanity, the preacher still advocates wisdom over foolishness. Second, I want us to see that even though the preacher advocates wisdom over foolishness, wisdom is still vanity. And then lastly, I want us to look at that distinction there and then think about that within the context of our lives. Sound good? Well, you can't go anywhere now, so it does. You have to, it has to sound good, all right? You guys are not very responsive. That's, that's hard for a guy that grew up in the South, a non-responsive audience. Or not audience, congregation. That's a horrible word. Jeez, I should sit down. All right, let's, let's consider first uh, that, that concept of wisdom over folly. All right, so as we look at these verses, the first thing we need to think about is that even though the conclusion of the preacher continually is vanity of vanities, he still advocates wisdom over folly. And this is not the first time he's done it. If we go back to chapter 2, verses 12 through 14, this is what we read. The preacher says, So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. (coughs) For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly. And there is more gain as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. Now ultimately, his conclusion in chapter 2 is that both the wise man and the fool end up in the same place. That is, they both end up dead. But that does not negate the present benefit of wisdom over folly. Right? So the preacher, even though he comes to this conclusion that all is vanity of vanities, he still says that having wisdom is preferable to being foolish. Now that sounds quite obvious, right? Here in our passage, we see the preacher do the same thing. We see him press for wisdom over folly. And so we see it in a couple places. Uh, look at the verses 5 and 6 of chapter 7. He says, It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. 
For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools. And if we look at 9 through 12, Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. Another translation in that might be, wisdom is as good as an inheritance, or good like an inheritance. Wisdom is good like money, he's saying. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. And so here, the preacher, again, in the passage that we're looking at, makes a press for wisdom over folly. Right? He says it's better to hear the rebuke of the wise than it is to hear the song of fools. He says that wisdom, being wise, is like having the protection of money. Now, that's a hard analogy for me to grasp because I don't have a ton of money. I don't feel super protected by my bank account, right? But the preacher who is putting himself forward as one who has treasure beyond treasure, right? Money is protection, right? I mean, money, if an emergency comes into your life, money answers a lot of life's ails, right? Something breaks down on your car, something breaks down on your house, it's good to have some cash set aside so that you can protect yourself. And the preacher says wisdom acts the same way. It acts to preserve the life. It acts to keep the life. It acts to guard the life because through wisdom, your life is extended. And so it's clear that while knowing what is good for a man might not be a question that we can fully answer, wisdom is certainly preferable to folly. And we would be wise to heed those words. Right? We should choose to be wise over being foolish. And that should go without saying. Right? Wisdom has much application in our life, whereas foolishness is destructive. But that does not mean that wisdom is ultimately the answer. So while the preacher does advocate for wisdom over folly, ultimately his assessment of wisdom is that it too is vanity. Wisdom is ultimately unable to bring the sense that the preacher is seeking to find and what he sees to be senseless. And so there's also a few places in this passage where we see that Wisdom is ultimately declared to be folly. First, if we look at um, 10 and 11. Oh no, why did I say 10? Oh, first, chapter 6, 10 and 11. I keep forgetting that I'm in two chapters here. Look at back up in chapter 6, verses 10 to 11. He says, Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what a man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? So even before we jump into these Proverbs, the, the preacher again is telling us that vanity of vanity, all is vanity. We've, we've seen him talk about like advantage for man before, right? What advantage does man have from his toil? What advantage does man have from his life? And ultimately the preacher comes to the same conclusion that even with wisdom, all things are vanity. Secondly, we see this in the second half of chapter, or uh, verse 6 in chapter 7. Chapter, or verse 5, he says, It's better for, to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. And then he says, This also is vanity. Now we might be tempted to think that um, that statement, this also is vanity, in verse 6 is just readily applicable to the laughter of fools. But it's better to understand that in light of the whole comparison that the preacher is drawing out there. And so even though it's better to hear the rebuke of the wise than it is the song of the fools, ultimately it is vanity. 
In verse 7 of chapter 7, we see that wisdom is vanity as well. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness and a bribe corrupts the heart. What is the preacher saying in verse 7? He's saying that even wisdom is not foolproof. Even the wise can become fools through corruption or bribery. So even though wisdom is preferable to folly, it is not foolproof. For the heart can be led astray and the wise can become fools through corruption or bribery. And then lastly, we see ultimately the vanity of wisdom in verse 13. It says, consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? And we're going to do something here. And I'm going to ask you not to tell Pastor Kevin that we're about to do this, all right? But we're going to read verse 14 as well. Now, I wasn't given 14 to preach, but we're going to go into 14 as well. In verse 14, it says, In the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, consider God has made one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. Right, we've seen before where the preacher considers the sovereignty of God, and he sees it more of a source of frustration than he does blessing, right? He understands that God is in control of all things, but that God has done things so that man can't figure it out. And in here, he sees his limitations, he sees his weakness, and he sees vanity. What good is all the wisdom in the world when I can't figure out what will come after me? This morning, I was uh, kind of in between sleep and uh, awake, and I had like a, I don't, I don't, like a mini dream. Do y'all ever have those? We're like, you're, you're kind of awake, you're kind of asleep, and then you find yourself kind of wrapped up in like this little dream. So I had this little, mini, I don't know where it came from, but I had this, I, it might have come, I watched uh, Running Man the other day with Arnold Schwarzenegger. I don't know if anybody's ever seen that classic 80s movie. Um, it might have come from that, because that's kind of like, <laughs> that, that movie is supposed to take place in like a dystopian future. And the first line says, in the year 2000, 2017, <laughs> the world is without food. And I was like, that's hilarious. But I had this dream that I woke up in my younger self, right? But I woke up in my younger self with all the knowledge that I have now. So I woke up like as like a 19-year-old Dan, but I knew that I was like a 39-year-old Dan who was married and had kids. And I had to go find Annie in Florida, who at that time was like a high school freshman, and I had to go tell her that she's my wife, right? I had to go find my wife. And I was thinking to myself, like, imagine that. Imagine, like, if I woke up in my younger body, I knew the future, and I could change it, but if I changed it, it would have, like, drastic implications on my future, right? Because the reason I met my wife is because I screwed up every other opportunity for college I had until the Lord called me to himself and saved me, and I ended up at Bible college, right? But here the preacher is saying that doesn't exist. Like, that, that dream, that reality doesn't exist. No matter how wise you are, no matter how much knowledge you have, the future remains a mystery, God knows it, God's planned it, God's purposed it, but we don't know it. And in that, he feels his ultimate weakness, and he sees vanity. So even though wisdom is, uh, is put forward and it's, and it's preferable to folly, ultimately it's vanity. And ultimately, it's not something that we should completely and utterly trust in. Yes, we should listen to the preacher. Yes, we should prefer wisdom over folly, but ultimately wisdom is not something we can trust in. If we seek to trust in wisdom too much, our trust in Christ will certainly wax and wane. Right? We think of what the Apostle Paul says in Corinthians uh, chapter 1. He says, Consider your calling, my brother. Not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many rich. 
right? God has chosen the base things of the world, the things that are not, to shame the things that are. Why does it say not many wise people, not many rich, not many mighty? Because what do the rich trust in? Their riches. What do the mighty trust in? Their might. And what do the wise trust in? Their wisdom. And so while wisdom is preferable to folly, wisdom ultimately in and of itself is vanity. Vanity of vanities, the preacher would say. And so while the preacher does advocate for wisdom in this text, ultimately wisdom joins money, excess, pleasure, toil as vanity of vanities. And so in light of that, we are left questioning how it is then that wisdom can be preferable to folly. And like I said at the beginning, we see that in the contrast that the preacher presents between wisdom and folly. And that contrast is one of awareness versus ignorance. And I would argue, like I said, that I think this is the major distinction between wisdom and folly. That of awareness and ignorance. And so as we look at this passage, what becomes clear is that the preference of wisdom over folly is found in the fact that the wise live with an awareness of the world as it is around them, whereas fools live in a less than blissful ignorance. And so we see this in several places. Look at verse 2. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. Now stop right there. Do you agree with that? How many of y'all have been to a funeral before? Okay, how many of y'all have been to a party before? Which one was more fun? The party. Thank you. Madeline's not afraid to answer. The rest of you are like, should I say party? Should I say funeral? Right? The house of mourning here is the house of death. That's what he's talking about, right? Let's think contextually. He says, better is death than the day of birth. So mourning is death. And he's saying it's better to go to the house of mourning than it is to the house of feasting. Another translation could be the house of drinking. So it's better to go to a a funeral than it is to go to a party. And why is it better to go to a funeral than it is to a party when the rest of us would rather go to a party than we would a funeral? And the reason, he says, is for this is the end of all mankind, and the living lay this to heart. He's saying that those who have awareness, those who know what what is going on, they understand that death is the end. Now, we might not want to talk about that. We might want to put it off. We might, might, might want to be like, Walt Disney and try to have ourselves frozen, but the truth of the matter is, death is coming, and you cannot escape it. I was in Africa, in in, uh, Liberia, uh, teaching Genesis a couple weeks ago. Unbelievable trip, awesome trip, amazing trip. 65 to 75 pastors that were working with there in Liberia, working them through the book of Genesis. And these are guys who each and every day are going out and they're fighting against health, wealth, and prosperity. They're fighting against the false gospel that's being preached in their churches. And we're working through the book of Genesis. And um, shortly after the fall, if you've read Genesis, there's, there's genealogies, right, in Genesis. And the first genealogy that's recorded is the generations of Adam, right? And what we notice there, one of the things we notice is that people lived a really long time, right? Like Adam lived like 930-something years, uh, Methuselah, 969 years. It's really neat. If you go there and you, you kind of work it out, you find out that Adam was alive like, like up until like 40 years before Noah was born, like the number of people he saw born, right? And so first we see these huge ages, and we're like, holy cow, people lived a long time. But you know what phrase 
is constantly repeated in that genealogy? It's not repeated in any genealogy after that. The phrase that is constantly repeated in that genealogy in Genesis chapter 5 is, and he died. And he died. Adam lived 130 years, and he fathered Seth. He lived 800 years after that, and he had other sons and daughters, and he died time and time again. Why? Because here we are, just outside of the Garden of Eden, just outside of the fall, removed from the tree of life by angels and a fiery sword. And what is Moses pressing in upon us? The consequence that God spoke of in Genesis 2, 15 through 17, that you shall surely die, is coming true. Even though they lived 969 years and he died, death is inescapable. And the living Lay this to heart. The living live. The wise live in an awareness that death is coming. And they order and they structure their life in light of it. They don't waste away their time with frivolous drinking and ignorance. But rather they live in reality that death is coming. We see it again in verse 5. It's better to hear the rebuke of the wise than the song of fools. And stop right there. Let me ask you a question. Would you rather hear a strong rebuke or a song? Guys, uh, this honestly is not difficult. Like, there, I swear there's no trick question here. No trick question. And if you'd rather hear a rebuke, that's fine. You can say that. Just kind of asking for some participation. Would you rather hear a rebuke or a song? You'd rather hear a song. Let's be honest. This is helpful for us. This helps us process the scriptures together. We would rather hear a song. But what does the, the, the preacher say? He says, it's better to hear a sharply worded rebuke than a joyful song. Why? He says, for as a crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools. You ever try to cook something over uh, like thistles and thorns or nettles? Have you ever tried that? Like you, how many of y'all like to go camping here? All right. And so one of the things you go camping, you've got to go find wood, Right. And if you just go around and you find a bunch of like little tiny scraps, like most of my kids do most of the time, what, what is that good for? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. You know what it does? It flares up really quick, makes a lot of noise, and is absolutely useless. You can't cook over it. You can't get warm over it. It does nothing. It flares up for a moment. It makes a lot of noise, and then it's gone. And that's what the laughter of fools are. The fool, you know, the laughter of the fools is it, it flashes up, makes a lot of noise, it's enjoyable for a moment, and then it's gone. It has no lasting impact. Whereas the rebuke of the wise can shape and turn your life for good and in another direction. He says it later on, it's better to live in patience than to be proud. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. That, that to me just seems like obvious. I mean, marriage to me seems like a great example of that. Like my marriage is far better now, uh, far better now than it, than it was at the beginning, right? That was some rough stuff at the beginning. But patience and perseverance on Annie's part mostly, not on mine. On, and patience and perseverance on my wife's part produces something far better now than it was at the beginning. And so what the preacher is showing us in this text is that the wise have a keen awareness of life, whereas fools live in absolute ignorance. And so we have to ask ourselves one more question. We have to say, what is the root 
of that awareness? And what is the root of that ignorance? Well, we find the root of awareness in Proverbs 1-7. It seems fitting to dip into the book of Proverbs as we're going through the book of Ecclesiastes. In Proverbs, a book of wisdom begins like this in verse 7. It says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Biblically speaking, wisdom finds its one and only root in relation to God, and namely, a proper fear of God. Now, we understand that when the Bible talks about fearing God, it doesn't mean that we fear Him like pagans fear God, that He's going to throw a lightning bolt at us when He gets angry, right? But it's living in a right understanding of who God is and who we are. And out of that, out of that, the Bible says wisdom comes out of that. The root of biblical wisdom is an understanding of who God is and who we are in relationship to Him. And who God is, is He is a sovereign creator and sustainer of the universe. And who we are, is we are His creation. And so wisdom is living in an awareness of that. It's living in an awareness that God is sovereign, that He is creator, and that we are not. And that ultimately we are held accountable to our Creator. Several times in the book of Ecclesiastes, the preacher speaks of God and his sovereign rule and control over his world. And in chapter 5, verses 1 through 7, the, the preacher gives clear instruction on fearing God and approaching God rightly. And even though the preacher's constant frustration, or his end is constant frustration, his wisdom is ultimately rooted in an awareness of his relationship to God. I think that's one of the most brilliant things that we see in the book of Ecclesiastes. And that's why I say Ecclesiastes isn't about hopelessness. It's because the preacher always understands himself in light of his relationship to God. There's never a disconnect here. He's not, he's not musing on life outside of a relationship to God. He constantly has God in the picture and fearing God and knowing God in the picture. Now, the end which he comes to is not the end that we should come to, but he never has God outside of the picture because wisdom is ultimately rooted in a relationship with God. And even the end of this book, even in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, where do we come to? We come to a conclusion that says, fear God and keep his commandments. And so ultimately the awareness that characterizes those who are wise is rooted in a right relationship and understanding of who God is. And conversely, the ignorance of the foolish is grounded in what we read in Psalm 14.1. In Psalm 14.1, the psalmist says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. The root of the fool's ignorance is found in his rejection of God, an unwillingness to live life in light of the sovereign Lord, leads the fool to live a life that is only focused on the here and now. The fool lives in complete ignorance of the true reality of life. And I think it's important to point out that this is a self-imposed ignorance. Look what the psalmist says. The psalmist says the fool says in his heart. 
This is a willful declaration. It's a willful rejection of God. There is no God, the fool says. Despite evidence, despite what I see around me, I declare there is no God. It's a self-imposed deception. It's a self-imposed ignorance. It's a self-imposed foolishness. It's extremely similar to what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 1. In Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 22, this is what Paul says. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they, they being those who reject God, those who live in ignorance of God, are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools." Foolish ignorance is not accidental. It's a willful rejection of God. And so what the, pre- what the preacher shows us here is the major distinction between those who are wise and those who are fools is those who live in an awareness that is born out of a relationship with God and those who live in ignorance that is born out of a rejection of God. And so I think, I hope, we're brought to a pretty clear place where we need to ask ourselves how we are living. We cannot come to the text and walk away unaffected. We need to ask ourselves, are we living with a wisdom characterized by an awareness that's born out of a relationship with God, or are we living in ignorance that is born out of a rejection of God? And like I said at the beginning, the preacher, he sees, he sees this distinction played out on the frame or on the plane of life, but we know that there are eternal implications for whether we are living in wisdom or whether we are living in foolishness, whether we are living in an awareness of who God is or whether we are living in an ignorance of who God is. Because how we answer this question is the difference between life and death. So are we living wisely? Are we living our lives with an awareness of God as sovereign creator over all things? Kevin touched on this last week when he spoke about money. Because to live with an awareness of who God is impacts every part of who we are. To live wisely has an impact on every aspect of who we are. It's not just a, uh, like a, a Sunday to Sunday reality. It's a reality that transforms and changes every single aspect of our life. It changes the way we interact with our spouse. It changes the way that husbands love wives and wives love husbands. It changes the way we parent, the way we shape our children and speak to our children and interact with our children. It changes the way we go to work. 
I used to work at Dick's Sporting Goods when I was in seminary. And I hated that job. Like, I hate retail. It made me hate uh, Thanksgiving, like Black Friday. Absolutely despise Black Friday now because of working in retail. And I used to be like super cheery and happy, right? So I'd be all happy from, from seminary. And then as soon as I like crossed the threshold into the exporting goods, it was like all joy was sucked out of my being, right? And I was just miserable. And that's not a good way to live, especially if you're a believer who's going to seminary. To like walk in and be like, like just a jerk is not great, Right? And so the Lord was gracious and kind, and he works on my heart, and he starts to shape the way I see work, right? Because one of the things about being a pastor or working in the ministry is you tend to exist in a little bubble, a gilded cage, so to speak. And unfortunately, my interaction with, the lost, with lost people is not that great. I'm pretty certain that everybody I work with at my office is saved. There's a couple I'm questioning, but I'm pretty certain that everybody that I work with at my missions organization who are traveling the world to preach and teach the gospel are believers, Right? But the same is probably not true for where you work. And so God in his grace and his kindness, he shaped the way I saw my work. So that it wasn't about me coming and getting a paycheck and getting out. It was, coming about, it was about me coming and having opportunity to rub shoulders with people who needed to hear the gospel. People who needed to see what it looked like to love Christ and follow Christ and pursue Christ. I had this young guy that I worked with who first day I showed up, he was like, man, I'm a Christian too, buddy. I love Jesus. And then he spent all his time talking about like, the girls he was womanizing. Uh, he was talking about like all the, the partying and drinking and getting drunk he was doing. And one day I looked at him and I was like, will you shut your mouth and stop telling people you're a believer? Because you're like, you're making it really hard for me as I'm trying to share the gospel and you're painting a false picture of what it looks like to follow Christ and I'm trying to paint a true picture of what it looks like to follow Christ. I don't think he took it that well, actually. But he didn't talk to me that much anymore. But, but it shapes the way we interact at work to be able to rub shoulders with people who need to hear the gospel. Living wisely is not just about reading your Bible more or praying more. It's about your life being shaped by the awareness that God is sovereign, that he rules over all things, and that ultimately death is not the end, but it is entrance into eternal life or eternal judgment. And conversely, living in ignorance is not simply just declaring outwardly that you reject God. But we can practically reject God. Right? We can, we can profess that we love Jesus. We can profess that we believe in God and we can come to church. But when our life is examined, we find that we are practically living in ignorance in the way that we conduct our life. We are living as if there is no God. We are living as if there is nobody whom we are going to be held accountable to. And so we have to ask ourselves, brothers and sisters, we've got to look at the contrast that the preacher is giving us, and we have to ask, how are we living? And how we answer that question has eternal implications. But here's the beauty of the gospel. The beauty of the gospel is that living wisely, as the scriptures call us to live, is beyond our capabilities. You see, the preacher constantly finds vanity of vanities in all things, right? And if we seek to live wisely in our own strength, to honor God with every aspect of our life, we will come to the same conclusion. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. But what God has accomplished through the gospel, 
God the Father in sending Christ the Son is that he has sent his Son to live the life that we never could, to die the death that we deserve, so that through Christ we now can live redeemed lives, not in our own strength, but in the strength that Christ provides. We can live redeemed and changed and transformed and wise lives, not because of who we are, not because of our strength, but because of the strength that comes through Christ. And so we should heed the words of James, right? James says, brothers, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him do what? Let him ask of God, who gives generously to all, and without reproach. Let us live our lives with a wise awareness of who God is so that we might glorify Him and make Him known. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise You and thank You for Your Word. We praise You and thank You for Your truth, Father God. We praise You and thank You for what You have accomplished through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And Father, I pray that You would strengthen us and equip us to live lives that are lived with a wise awareness of who you are and who we are and what you have accomplished for us through Christ Jesus. God, we pray that you would seize our lives. We pray that you would control our lives. And Father, we pray that you would give us strength to live our lives in wisdom. In Christ's name, amen. Um, Well, we're going to now have a time of uh, response to the gospel, right? I believe that every time we gather under the teaching of Christ, the Holy Spirit is calling us to respond to his word, to respond in faith, to respond in repentance, to respond in trust, to respond in hope, to respond in joy at what God has accomplished through Christ Jesus. And so a couple of ways that we do this, we're going to sing. There's a little box in the back. You can give your offering if you bring it uh, as an act of worship unto the Lord. And also we take the Lord's Supper as a church as an act of worship, and that's in the back. And I want to encourage you that as you Um, prepare yourself uh, to take the Lord's Supper, to keep a couple things in mind. One, this is a gift that God has given to his church. Those who have repented and believed the gospel and have put their faith and trust and hope in Christ, it's a gift that he's given to believers. Not just to remember what Christ has done, but to proclaim what Christ has done. Paul says in in Corinthians 11, he says that, that this, the Lord's Supper, is an act of proclamation of the death of Jesus until he returns And so what we do as we take the Lord's Supper, as we as brothers and sisters in Christ, we proclaim over each other the gospel. We proclaim over each other that we are saved not by our works or by our merit, but we are saved by Christ's body being broken and his blood being spilled out on our behalf. And so if you're a brother or sister in Christ, we invite you and I implore you to take the Lord's Supper with us this morning and rejoice in the salvation that is ours in Christ Jesus. You do this as the Lord leads you.